Okay. So what do we do now, right? Sanctification, this process of after we're saved for the rest of our lives here on this earth, what is going on? Um, okay. So if Jesus saves, adopts, and loves us all by grace, then what do we do now? Is there anything we're supposed to do? Uh, is there anything left to do? Um, so, Sam, can you read Romans 6? Romans 6, 8 through 9. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Alright. So, grace. If, key is grace. If by grace Jesus died for us, right, then we, what does it mean to live by grace? Because here is the problem, right, that a lot of church people have, even a lot of Christians genuinely have. Because again, you can be saved by grace, but then a lot of times their thought is, okay, I couldn't be righteous on my own, so Jesus dies to save me by grace, so I can get a second chance, and I better try harder now. <laughs> Whether people recognize that or not, a lot of us live that way. When it comes to facing our sins, when it comes to growing in the Word, you end up hearing a lot of have-to-shoulds. Right? So when you talk with students, I know I have to, I know I should be doing this. And for me, that's usually an instant, right, um, recognition that, hey, you are being, you may believe you are saved by grace, but you don't think grace has anything to do with your sanctification. It just becomes about effort. Now, we can't, we can't really debunk that until we've talked through, right, all these other things. Because if sin is not God, and we add to that the understanding that salvation is being saved from sin, then what we understand is that sanctification is about being restored to God. So sin is us, is not God. Salvation comes by grace, restores us to God. And therefore, sanctification is that process of being restored to God by grace. Okay, Jasmine, can you read Galatians 2? Um, Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. So, this idea, therefore, of even as we live post-salvation, our lives are still being lived in the gospel of Christ, in grace. Okay, so what does that mean? This is usually kind of the thing that I'm, that I'm um, centering our thought about salvation on. Uh, do you guys know what the Westminster Shorter Catechism is? Um, Alright, so the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. Now, when back when a lot of when we talk about the Holy Spirit and salvation, one of the things that we're looking at is how a lot of times our other religions or other cultural ideas understand this idea or articulate different ideas. 
So one is, what does it mean to be good? So in our world systems right now, what are some of the prevailing concepts of what it means to be good? Okay, so it means to do the right things. Okay, what else? To not support the evil. Okay. So in against what is evil? Law abiding. Law abiding. Okay. So what is the motivation therefore that is good? where Joey challenges Phoebe. Uh, you don't do anything, you can't do anything good without making yourself feel good. Yes. Okay. No kind act is done without an ulterior motive, basically. Yes. Okay, so there's this idea, which is still very dominant, that what is truly good is selfless. Yeah. Right? So we often contrast what is good with what is selfish. That, oh, if this is selfish, then therefore it must not be good. Okay? That makes sanctification impossible. If that's our mentality of what righteousness and goodness is, is selflessness, then sanctification isn't going to work. And nothing else does work either, right? And that was the argument in Friends, right? Which is, you cannot do something good for somebody else without reaping any benefit at all for yourself. And the Bible comes and says, Yadoi, right? Like, that's, that's how it's supposed to work. So the idea that we're trying to transition people to, because then for our students, a lot of times doing good and doing what feels good are diametrically opposed. And therefore, a lot of people are in the struggle between what is right and what is pleasurable. So I think, oh, if it's pleasurable, it must be wrong. And what is right must not be pleasurable. And so what the Bible is coming and trying to under, make us understand is that if we're being restored to our original creation, and we looked at who we are, a part of that original creation being to enjoy God, enjoy one another, and enjoy uh, creation, then we understand that sanctification is that. Sanctification is ultimately restoring us to the place of enjoyment and not toil. Okay, so have any of you heard the idea of Christian hedonism? So do you guys know who John Piper is? Okay, he made it really famous in like the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, so he defines it as this, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Uh, so Eunice, can you read Philippians and Luke, and then Soy can read Matthew? Philippians one twenty one for to, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Mm. Luke ten twenty seven, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Matthew twenty two thirty seven to thirty eight, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is a great and first commandment. The second is like get. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All right. <clears throat> now, if you ever thought about this, Jesus puts these two commandments together, right? So he says the second is like the first. 
how is it like the first? Love God, love your neighbor. Those seem like two very separate commandments. Right? So the key here is when he says to love your neighbor as yourself. So what do we often think that that means? Right? The golden rule. She just does say, right? So you treat others the way you want to be treated. But if you think about it, isn't that a selfish statement? Right? I am going to figure out how I treat you is going to be based off of my selfish desire of how I would like to be treated. Okay? So Jesus is saying, no, your selfishness, right, which has been tainted by sin, but that motivation that's there is actually still good, right? That the way that you would want to be treated, you treat someone. So the first way we can understand love your neighbor as yourself is you love your neighbor in the same way you would love yourself, okay? But that still doesn't connect us to the first part, right? Love God, then love your neighbor like you. I can do the second without the first, right? I can love my neighbor like I would love myself without having to love God. So what is the thing that to love my neighbor as myself that I need to love God in order for that second thing to be unlocked, right? And so the key here is it's to love your neighbor as yourself. Not like you would love yourself, right? But to love, you shall love your neighbor as yourself as your very being. Because what then Jesus, we understand Jesus is saying is, as you love God with all that you are, all that you are is being transformed. And therefore, who you are that has now been transformed is a person that will go and love your neighbor. Okay. Do you understand the difference there? Okay, so with sanctification, this becomes really key. Because for most of us, we think, okay, God has saved me, so I love him. But he's asking me to do all these things that I should do and I have to do. So I need to do them so that I can grow in God's love and be more sanctified. That's how a lot of us live our Christian lives. That's the way we fall into. But that doesn't make sense, right? Because if I had to do these things for God to love me, why don't I just do them before Jesus died for me, right? And why would Jesus, why would Jesus die for me to save me my grace, to put me back in the same system that I failed in before, right? So what we begin to understand is, no, sanctification is not these are the things that you should do because God loves you or because, right, that then you'll grow in love. It's saying, as you love God and you realize God loves you, this becomes who you are. And so all the things that I'm doing, I'm not doing them for the rules sake. I'm doing them because this is my new self. And so I love my neighbor as myself, or I love my neighbor as yourself. This is what Pastor DC preached today. Oh, really? It was the Mark version of this. And yeah, uh-huh. it's basically what he said. Yes, yeah. It's very profound, especially when we start doing it into our, right, like, um, okay. So the idea, right, is to say sanctification is not about effort, but sanctification is about enjoyment. 
Now that doesn't mean that things will not things will still happen, right? We'll talk about spiritual disciplines right later, but to realize that it is not about putting in more effort, but it is about receiving through grace new enjoyment. Okay. So let's look at some ways that that happens. Okay, so enjoy your renewed identity by learning the word. So Sam, can you read Romans, and then Jasmine, can you read Psalms and John? Oh, Romans 12. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Psalm 86:11, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. John 8, 31-32 So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Okay, so notice in all of these, right, what the order is, okay? Because we often think that I have to read the Bible because that is what will make me more righteous. So we have all these high school kids especially that are like, oh, I know I need to read my Bible more. As soon as they say that, I'm like, they don't understand, right? They don't understand this, right? Because you don't read the Bible in order for God to, right, love you more. So notice, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by, okay, because if I need to read my Bible more, then that order should be different. Don't conform to this world, but renew your mind, and then you'll be transformed, right? It says, no, your transformation is actually because of the renewal of your mind, right? Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Not, well, I got to walk in your truth because then you're going to teach me more. Right? It's like, no, show me what it is because that's what I want to be because that's who I am. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So it's not an effort issue, right? It's saying you just don't know the truth. So the reason we read the word is because we don't know the truth. It is not the effort by which we read the word, right? In which we, like, oh, if I read more, if I read harder, if I read better, then I'll be more free. It's saying, no, there's something I don't know about who I am. And I'm reading the word so I can know who that is, so I can enjoy that identity. Okay, so I listed some examples here, but do you have examples that are fitting for you? I think one of the things, I think I remember even from like the freedom manual teaching, one time someone broke it down for me how um, if you were, like when you come from school, like talking to the high school kids, like, and you open up the fridge to look for drinks or food. If you knew that you were the daughter of the house, then you wouldn't be 
asking and even worrying about if you can do that like you it's such a natural thing for you to open up the fridge and like scan what you want to eat mm -hmm. and that's because you're you're the daughter right like that's already given to you so your action was according to who you are not because of i don't know right. none of those thoughts come to your mind whereas if you were not the daughter of the house and you go to someone else's house in order for you to open up the fridge of your friend's house, like, like you don't like that's unthinkable because you know it's not yours. And I think that helped me to understand how like that piece about us walking in sanctification. So much of it depends on us knowing that we're already <laughs> in the right standing with God, not because we want to be in the right standing with God. Yeah. So I think it's good because nobody says when they go home to their own house, oh, I have to open my uh -huh. prayer. Like, I have to do these things, right? Mm -hmm. You're opening it as an act of enjoyment to that food that is there. So I think another good analogy for, for a lot of our students is, right, especially for maybe their seniors, after they've applied, right, for college, and they know that all the acceptance emails now, right, are going out, what do they do? You're checking it, right? You're checking your email box, right, like religiously. Why? Do you have to? No. Does checking it change whether you've been accepted or not? No. So why are you checking it? Because I want to know, right? So I think the same way it's saying, if through grace, Jesus has already transformed me. He's already renewed me. But I don't know how yet, right? So I'm opening the word, not because that in of itself transforms me, the opening and the reading, but because I know I have been transformed. My mind has been, re been renewed. But now I want to discern what God's will is. I want to know what it means to be accepted. I want to know what that means. Right? It's the same way that maybe like after you're accepted, they send you like an orientation packet. Like, do you need to read all of this? No, you're already in, right? But you want to because I want to be able to enjoy this newfound identity that I have as a student of the school. Oh, and then someone also explained to me how it's like a game too. The more you know about the rules of the game, the more right. you enjoy it. Right. But it's not, yeah, they're not there to restrict Restricting. you. Restricting or something they are, for your enjoyment. Okay, so, right, we enjoy our identity by reading the word. Um, enjoy your blessings by allowing God to transform your desires. Uh, so you guys can read Psalm 37 and Ephesians 6. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Okay, so this is kind of what we talked about on Sunday, or today during the message, right? That one of the things God is doing is actually saying, I want you to desire more. Right? Psalm 37, the second part of that verse doesn't work without the first part. God doesn't give you the desires of your heart just willy-nilly. It's when the desires of your heart are the Lord. When you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you himself. Um, 
Okay. And Ephesians 6, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Right? But think about what that promise is. That you may live long in the land. And the whole context of these Ten Commandments is, I'm bringing you into the land. Right? So when I bring you into the land, I want your desire to be for this land and to live here in a way that is good, which requires honoring your father and your mother. Okay. So this idea of when we say to people or when we are, are discipling people, if you look at like, you know, that secret to life, what are we doing? We're not telling them this is the things that you should do. We're first speaking the gospel of truth then showing them this is how it changes who you are by grace. And if this is who you have been changed to be, then now this is what your desires will change to. Right. Um, one example for me, and so any examples that you guys have is like, I did not care about football at all. Right. I didn't care about football at all. And that changed for me because my freshman year, I went to USC and we were really good at football. So all of a sudden me being a part of this community changed my desire of what even in enjoyment, what I wanted to enjoy. Okay. Any illustrations for you guys? That's a solid. Okay. All right. So you may notice, right, that so one of the things that we're doing is kind of walking back through that secret to life, right? So we change our desires, and then there is enjoying your freedom by actually living free. Um, so, so can you read those two verses from Galatians 5? Galatians 5, for freedom of Christ has set us free, and stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 19 to 24. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Okay. So the old desires are gone, replaced by the new desires. When that happens, then the actions of sanctification, right, the denial of certain things, we realize that um, godly living is not a means to a reward. That godly living is the reward. So even then as we're discipling people, every time anybody is struggling with either sin or giving up something, we want to be emphasizing, if they are saved, right? If they are saved, do you understand that these are not the things that you should do? These are not the things that you have to do. That actually what, where God is leading you is the thing that you want to do. This is the life that you actually want to live. And if they don't see that, then we have to try to help them figure out why they don't understand that, right? Because, yeah, it makes no sense, right? Like, 
Like, um, you guys know about like Me Too right now and like Les Moonves. Les Moonves, the head of CBS, and like he got he got accused of a bunch of stuff, but there was no corroborating evidence. So a few months ago, CBS like terminated him, but then they owed him like a hundred twenty million dollar severance package. But then two days ago, the New York Times released a because this one guy whose client he had assaulted, he kept all the text messages that Les Moonves had sent him. So now there's corroborating evidence. So it's like, oh, so they don't have to pay him. But one of the, the funniest, saddest things that I see in almost all of these Me Too events is there is some guy who sa always says, oh, but we don't want to ruin his life over this, right? Like, you don't want to ruin the guy's life over this thing. And I'm always like, who's ruining his, you ruined your own life, right? Like you did this to you. So if this is not what you wanted, then why did you do this, right? Like just because he got caught. Right, like, mm -hmm. so there's a disconnect because there's, because here's this person saying, essentially like if we think about like assault and rape as I think like, and it can be a very jarring example, especially for like <laughs> kids, right? Here is the pinnacle of somebody doing what they wanted to do in the moment, right? Like, I think rape is probably the most drastic form of that, right? I'm going to do what I want to do, but then I don't actually want the life that that becomes, right? So this is what God is saying. The reason why thou shalt not rape is not just because rape is bad, although it is, right? It's saying that if you are truly selfish, if you are truly selfish for your own life, you would not do these things. If you are truly selfish for what God, for the good things that God has for you, then of course you wouldn't rape. Of course you wouldn't assault. Of course you wouldn't abuse. So it's changed. It's maybe not changing. It's adding that element of saying not just that you shouldn't want these things but making people realize you actually don't want these things and what God is leading you to is actually what you want and then you can live in that freedom. That's for believers and non-believers? I think it is to some degree for non-believers as well in the principles of it, but for a non-believer, the principle ends at a certain point because for us, the principle extends to eternity, right? Saying that ultimately what I want like long-term big picture is a 10 million year plan, right? And so God is doing that for me. So the same principle applies to those who are not believers because you could say to that person, right? Don't do this because you'll have a better life 20 years from now or 30 years from now. But like rape, for example, right? For a lot of people, it was saying, just don't get caught, <laughs> right? You can do it, just don't get caught and then you'll have the life that you want. Right? And that is the extent I think you have without God. Right? So I can kind of give you a little bit more long term, but I can't give you a long enough term. But then even like when we talk to a lot of our kids, sometimes the advice we're giving is 20 years looking down the line. But hopefully what we're doing as well in discipleship making is saying, yes, look 20 years down the line, but also look 20,000 years down the line. Right? And the same way that we live our lives now, in light of 20 years, let's live it in light of 20,000 years. Yeah. For non-believers, then, wouldn't you say the desires that lead someone to commit stuff like rape and sexual assault, like, 
even though not everyone would express their desires in rape. Couldn't we say that all non-believers have that same core desire, though? Because I feel like in the end, it's... Right. The distinction between believers and non-believers is we glorify God and they don't. Like, they glorify themselves. And so, to that extent, wouldn't you just say, like, oh yeah, deep down, this is what you truly want? Yes, but I think it is a perversion of a desire. Right. So, for instance, right, like, say what it is, is I want intimacy. Right. And then sin. Right. Which is this taking of what was true and pure and defiling and perverting it is saying what I want is intimacy. But in my sin, what that what that has now meant for me is purely physical. Right? Or is an intimacy that can only be found in like control or power. And so to be able to say to somebody that that perverted desire, that what Jesus is wanting to do is to restore it to its pure desire and then fulfill that. Right. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. So it's, again, so that's why it's like, yeah, the process, but it doesn't, because there hasn't been a restoration of desire yet, right? right? Because until salvation, that non-believer, right, is still in this mode of what I want is a sinful thing, right? Is a perverted thing, but it is a, but when Jesus does save, right, he is changing that by grace and then sanctification becomes a process of now fulfilling that pure desire. I don't even think people who, like, without having, like, the mind transformed, especially in the case of rape and sexual assault, I don't think there is even a lot of guilt. Like, people would not, not, like, regardless of being found out or not, getting caught or not, I, I think the problem right now the reason why there's like so much talk about it is because there are actual people who will say what's wrong with that right like like that's only a very select like group of like sociopaths or like very psycho type of people who like even serial killers when they get caught and like if they just express remorse they won't get like life sentences or whatever or like the death penalty but they still they're like oh i don't really care but i feel like in the sense that when people do get caught and those that feel bad and express guilt like oh i'm so sorry for whatever they're not believers i feel like they only feel bad in the sense they feel bad for themselves yeah they feel right bad yeah yeah and i think yeah. it's it's like the same way those there are these layers of who we are right there are layers of guilt because i mm-hmm. think it's like they are guilty they feel guilty that they got caught right or they may even feel guilty that they did this thing. And to some degree, they may even feel like, I was like, they feel guilty that it adversely affected somebody else. Right. But if they're in the mentality where good and evil is simply those things, right? right? Like we talk about sin, what good and evil is not. Right. But if they're in the mentality of what good and evil is, is just bad actions or whatever, yeah. there isn't that level of guilt that there's a guilt over my desire and there's a guilt over my identity. Right. This is who I am. Right? Because that's why even like for all these, like, 
what was the um the olympics dude nasser where i was like do i want to punch this guy in the face right like isn't like one of his he's like he's like but this isn't really who i am and i was like this is who you are. That's the problem. Like you are a rapist. Like that is a part of who you are, right? So that guilt hasn't penetrated to that place, which is to say that my very being, right, is at fault or is sinful. Do you think it's possible to convince an unbeliever then to like shift his desires? Because you're saying unbelievers express their desires in like twisted ways. Uh-huh. If we take God out of the equation, do you think there's even an argument for like, hey, shift your desires, expression towards like this more like noble? I think there is, but there's a limit. And that limit is very far, right? Far down, not far up, right? That limit is very shallow. But I think there is, right? Because... It's like Gandhi fought for the poor while he was super racist, right? right? Like, you know, so it's like, okay, we can ship people. And that's why I think there is an effort to do that, right? But no, I think that there is a very, like, one of the, the few, like, right-wing commentators that I like, right? So one of the things, like, with this whole immigration issue, right? He was like, the problem is... And he's a believer, so this is why he writes it. He was like, when we're saying we should do the right things for these immigrants, right, we are writing in a mentality that we're talking to believers. To say that to do what is good and generous is in and of itself worthwhile. But if we believe, which he does, that we're largely a nation not of believers, then we have to change our argument to say, what does America get out of letting these immigrants in? Like, we need to, because you're not articulating do what's right. Because they don't want to do what's right, right? So, but in that essence to say, like, what is, what is unsaved selfishness, right? But then what becomes saved selfishness? Because I think the problem is we think unsaved selfishness, which is bad, should become salvation selflessness. But the problem is if we set ourselves up for that, none of us achieve that, right? So it's about transforming those desires, right? And those, then the, the acts of those desires into what has been transformed, but not by our works, but by salvation, which has been given by grace. It's, would you say the limit is like cultural? I think the limit is pressural, right? Like, by how much can we pressure somebody and keep them accountable and create a system of sticks and carrots that will keep them on this path that is good. Right. Yeah, because I even take like this extreme thing, say like rape. Mm-hmm. I feel like my argument towards an unbeliever to persuade them, hey, don't rape someone in, in the United States would be, you're going to mess up your life. Like yeah. you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. But take us back to like, I don't know, like an Anglo-Saxon civilization and they just conquered a, another land. And they raped a lot of people. Yeah, what's the counter-argument there, you know what I'm saying? Right. Like they would be awarded 
for their aggressiveness right. or um, so I feel like you, the argument at its core is just like glorify yourself in different ways like without salvation yeah yeah so yeah I think that part of our our fighting for social justice is acknowledging that we are fighting in a world where people are not saved and many people may will never be saved right so how do we advocate for good in that world and in that system but yeah like i think that's a perfect case in point right it's like if there's no checks or balances if there's no pressure against it i do believe that without salvation like we will do all levels of atrocity right because that's what history tells us and so what is the one deterrent then from that right it is god right it is that idea like god sees god knows and he is just right and then therefore the whole system changes and in salvation but then that changes into a system of penalization right which again i think has a limit right which i run into for like hinduism and buddhism because karma right it's a penal system in essence, right? You do bad, you'll get punished eventually, right? There's still a limit. I think it is only the real understanding of grace that transforms identity that then has the potential to really bring about the utmost good or pure good. Okay. All right, so that was uh, Enjoy Your Freedom by Living Free. Uh, again, for them to understand, right, that what Jesus is bringing us into is a place of freedom. Now, still of work, but no longer toil. And so all of these things, we have to be very careful, especially in high school and I think early college, because if we end up going into spiritual disciplines before we've really articulated freedom, we're just putting a different level of bondage. We're just putting a religious pharisaical bondage. Okay. Enjoy your true purpose by doing good works. Sam Creed, Ephesians 2. Verse 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay. So we often think we earn God's rewards because we do good works. But in reality, what we see is that we receive God's blessings, which are the good works. Right? God prepared these good works beforehand that we should walk in them. So think about that. God prepared it so that you could walk through it. God didn't say, you need to do this so I can walk through it. So I'm going to prepare so you can walk through it. So what he's saying is, this is the blessing, <laughs> right? Sanctification itself is the blessing that he is trying to give us. What would be an illustration for people to understand this when it's like, when our society is so much more leadership and performance-based? I think one is often like missionary testimonies, right? So... Like when somebody goes on missions and they are working and everything, they are being blessed, right? Or even like many people, even to a small degree, taste that when they serve in church, right? How many times at retreat have you heard like staff say, 
right? Like, oh, you know, I came looking to serve other people, but I realized that I was really being blessed. So my theological response, I won't say it at the moment, right? My theological response is, why wasn't it both, right? Why don't I go to serve, to serve, but also to be blessed, right? Now, it may not be comfortable blessed, right? But I'm still going to be blessed. So does, does the second detract from the first, right? Like if you leave a retreat and you're like, wow, I was so blessed, you don't feel guilty about that. <laughs> Hopefully not, right? You don't feel like, oh man, I like stole the blessings, right? It's like, it's like there was 10 blessings and I just stole like eight of them, <laughs> right? Some people do, which is why we need to talk to them about sanctification, right? Because it should be both simultaneously. I feel like everyone expresses this in like every personal statement of like, oh, I want to become a doctor so I can help others. Like that's my main desire in life, you know what I'm saying? But like, oh, but deep down, just in my small group, like a bunch of senior dudes, we just, they're all like, yeah, dude, like I want to be a doctor because I, I want to be rich, you know what I'm saying? But um, yeah, I feel like on the surface, like even with sanctification, like everyone's this desire in life, even non-believers have this, like, oh, I'm fulfilled when I help others. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's understanding that when it becomes both in the gospel, in that is the freedom, right? Because saying, what does God, but even when we ask that question, how many, what does God want me to do? we always make it feel like that is against what I want to do, right? Like what God wants me to do is what I don't want to do. But what Jesus is saying is that as I transform you by grace, then all of a sudden what God wants for you is what you want for you, right? And to realize what that is and then to walk in it is in and of itself the joy that is there. Because I think the reason why like, I've heard of that illustration, too, about mission field or even some, yeah, sort of things. But I feel that that illustration is able to be explained apart from the gospel. As in, there are people who serve overseas and they say the same thing, or even on a local base. Right. So I feel that it's a bit... Yeah, it's not a complete right. encapsulation of what this truth is saying. Right. Like, like in reality, we see God's blessing, which are good works. Like. So I think it's similarly to what Sam was saying about, like, can somebody's desire turn for good? It's like, yes, but to a limit. Because even, like, for that, it's saying, yeah, somebody can go and, you know, like the, like the free Burma Rangers, right? You guys know who they are? They're like, their their thing is like we're Greenpeace with guns. <laughs> so there's like a lot of and a lot of nonprofits refuse to carry firearms. The Free Burma Rangers are like, no, if they have firearms, we're gonna have firearms. But so they're able to do a lot of these crazy things like rescue people because they actually have guns with them, <clears throat> right? But so there's a group founded by a Christian but not explicitly Christian, right? So there's people that go for all kinds of reasons. I think the question then becomes: To what extent can those reasons carry you, right? And to what extent does that desire become yours? Because it, it's like for me to think, right? Again, 10,000, like 
I can do all of these things because it helps you to live an extra 40 years. And that gives me a certain amount of joy, right? And so I'm still selfish, but it is a limited amount. Whereas if I'm going with the gospel, then it is infinite life, right? And therefore my joy in that becomes an infinite joy. And I think that's something that you cannot do without the gospel. Can we even say that unbelievers' works are good to even like a certain extent? It depends how we define it, right? Because in the beneficial whatever way, like Just the flourishing like, of mankind. Right, like of course, right? Yeah. But I think even in the of God's will, right? Yes, we can. Now, it was not intended for good, you know, because it was not intended for God's will. But Pharaoh, right? <clears throat> um, right? Or like Potiphar's wife, right? Because Joseph is saying, God turned this for good. Yeah. It was not intended for good, but it is good because God has now put it as part of his will, or has made it his will. Right. So I think in, in that sense, I can say, yes, like people can do things that are good without God, but because God makes them good. God makes the actions good. But can somebody, can somebody do the will of God intentionally without him? No. For sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think it's even, I actually met a professor who was, who recalled, who referred to himself as a uh, someone who believes in betterism. Wow. <laughs> I was like, no, I believe in horses. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's like I know, a... right? But he came to that place because he said that, like, so for him, the greatest good and the greatest goal in life is to be better. Right. Like any purpose in life is to be better. Without actually mentioning about that measurement of what what defines good or not. Because he didn't find that even necessary. Right. He just knew that like for the rest of his life he wanted to posture himself in his life to do better. Right. Than he was before. So I think it is the lack of the definition for that, right, that causes the problems. Because at its heart, that is true, uh -huh. right? You should want to be better. But then, shouldn't you want to be the best, right? Nobody trains, as Paul, as Paul writes, nobody, nobody trains to run the race just to run the race. They train to win, right? So in that sense... Because it is not defined, it is not brought to its conclusion, which is that that which is best is God, has to be God. And without finding that their best is impossible to achieve, there is no, like they can't strive, they can't even strive for best. Like they don't, right. they, and but, the reason why they go for uh, betterism is because for them, There I mean, is no point of best being Right, best. because if there is no, if best is either unobtainable or best is non-existent, 
then betterism works because I just have to be better than you, <laughs> right? All I'm doing is measuring myself next to somebody else. It's like one of the film reviewers I listen to because they always have to review these terrible animated movies. And he's like, he's like, you said it's better than this other movie, but that's like saying like one is bigger than zero. <laughs> it's like you haven't gone very far. But I guess you can still say that, right? So, but it's saying if you push it and you push it, then at some point you have to come to that conclusion. Either the best is unattainable or it is non-existent. I feel like without worldview, if everyone's just sole goal in life is to become better than they were yesterday, I'm like, he has no problems with like a nationalist or like a racial superiorist, like, or even Hitler, like, yo, he's trying to better the nation by wiping out all the Jews and just claiming racial superiority, like, then he's like, Hitler was like the most successful man. <laughs> <laughs> no, but someone asked him that because yeah. it's like, What's the definition? What defines better? Like for you to be better in a capitalist society, maybe that America makes so much money, but at the at the cost of this another nation, right? right going on going in bankruptcy. Let's say then, what's who is it better for? Right. right? So it's not very relative. And for him, he he was like, but there you you know what is better. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, who has faith now? Who has faith now? I know. I was like, wow. So that goes back to, right, like, when oh, we talked man. about arguing for God, right, the moralist, the moral argument for God, right, is like at some point you have to have this, yeah. this statement. And then, yeah. Your professor thinks you're God, Soli. <laughs> no, but it's, no, it's interesting God. because I could see how people, because they're in their conclusion, in their equation, like they venture into these like thoughts about what truth is. And they want to make their life, they want to change their lives according to that definition of truth. But they constantly meet this end of then, okay, then is this more than just my, right. my finiteness, right? And they do see God. So none of them call themselves atheists, right? right? They all call themselves agnostic. And I give them props for that. Like my professor right. was also like, yeah, atheists are stupid, right? right. How could you believe that you don't believe in God when you by you saying that you just believe right. that there is existence of God, right? But I think for in, in a lot of the conversation, it's also funny because they do open themselves up to that place of this vast opportunities and chances of truth, and I think they're more sometimes they're more prone to receiving the gospel than I think people in the church. Yes. And I think, and there, I mean, it's all, again, part of the difficulty of even us doing this systematically, you don't know, right, where people will come in, mm -hmm. right? But I do think that there, that even as we're talking about sanctification, mm -hmm. we realize that true sanctification doesn't come without salvation and the gospel because it just becomes works, right? So even when we are, doing ministry, and this is especially true in a youth ministry context, but I think even in adult ministry context, it's saying, are we talking about sanctification with people that haven't been saved yet? Right. So are we placing now 
the freedom of sanctification without the gospel becomes a burden of sanctification. So it's saying, how do we, how do we show and preach? Because we have to preach sanctification. And so how do we do that in a way so that those who are not saved are minimally burdened? I think mean, not burdened. Do you think it's right? a bad thing, though? Just because if we say sanctification is like good works, right? Mm-hmm. And we give them these qualifications like, look, this is what good works is. And I feel like it's almost like, here's the law. I think when we do it as a matter of effort, yes. But when we present it as enjoyment, that is when it changes. What do you mean by that? So I would like, for instance, like, I think it was Francis Chan, or it was David Platt, I can't remember. One time he like preached like at this church after when he was a missionary. And then the pastor went up and was like, all right, we're going to collect offering for the missionary. You all better give. Otherwise, I'm going to pray for your kids to become missionaries. And he was like, what the F, man? <laughs> right? Like, it was like, that, that doesn't make any sense. He was like, no, like, his, it is a joy to have done this mission's work, right? So even, <laughs> yeah, it's like a punishment. It's like a curse. Right? Yeah, like a curse. You're I'm a curse. Like, so the same way, right, like, and even something like offering, right? And this is why, like, so high school, I don't know, our high school department has the lowest per capita offering of our whole church. Like, we're lower than, than Abby's. Abby's just averages like a dollar, right? Because most kids bring a dollar. That makes sense, though. We average, high school kids probably just keep it. Yeah, we average like point like six, right? I said, you know how much... Don't tell me. Don't tell me how much we average, right? We average a super low offering per capita, right? But part of that, right, I think is them wrestling with this, right? Because even as adults, we have to wrestle with this. Like, God loves a cheerful giver. I've wrestled so many times, but I was not a cheerful giver. And even now, I forget, right? What does it mean for the giving of my offering to not only be for a future joy, but the giving itself is a joy. Right? Then from the very beginning, like, like, would you say that, you know how you said like, a lot of the time new believers come to, Oh, the new believer comes to understand sanctification by work, uh, by efforts, not as enjoyment. And, you know, and it relates to even offering and everything else. Then, is the gospel, has the gospel been preached at all from the beginning if the right view of sanctification was not preached? Because if... I think yes, right? And so, like my biblical example would kind of go back to even what we looked at with Acts with the Holy Spirit, right? So, for instance, like, I'm trying to remember because I haven't studied in a while, like Simon the Sorcerer, right? So Simon the Sorcerer comes and he becomes one of the disciples, right? So he is an has a knowledge of Jesus and the same faith of Jesus, but then when it comes to the Holy Spirit, he says, how much do we have to pay, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And the disciples have to rebuke him and say, no, that's not how this works, right? It's by grace. 
So I do think there is many people who they understand that salvation by grace and they are saved by grace, but then that sanctification either they don't know or like for me in my own life, I am quick to forget, right? Like how many of us are just quick to forget? We get in this place where these are the things that I have to do, I should do, right? If I don't do them, God won't bless me, right? Like I remember a couple years ago when I had like a relapse with pornography and I was talking to um, Pastor Sean, right? I was talking to Pastor Sean and I was like, you know, I just feel like this is something that I'm still struggling with and that like, you know, like God really wants to like bless me, like, and I need to, you know, be working on this. And he's like, let me stop you right there. <laughs> he was like, let me just tell you what you just told me. I need to do something so that God will bless me. What does that sound like to you? And I was like, oh, that sounds like works. And he was like, yeah, right? I think you're forgetting about grace. And I was like, what, right? I was like, what does it mean to just have grace, right? And to receive grace and receive transformation and then to realize, right, that that works. So again, in my example there, right, that like a life without pornography was not a work I had to do. A life without pornography was the joy that I wanted. It was like, this is literally what I'm asking God for. And he's saying, and I'm giving it to you for free. So you, so me then not watching porn is not the work that I am doing for God's blessing. It is me enjoying God's blessing in my life. I just feel like, I don't know. I think to me, like effort though, it's not really, it doesn't have to be opposed to grace. Like, I feel like, because I think we've said this word effort a lot in this talk. And like, uh, I don't know, at least for me, like, I feel like even after receiving grace and knowing that I'm not working to like earn something, it's still not like 100% natural, like where I don't have to fight or put in any effort. Right. So I feel like... Yeah, I think there's not a word that does fit 100% correctly. Toil might be the best word, right? Because I think what you're saying is like, there is there is still action on our part, right? Which when we get to spiritual disciplines, we'll talk about specific instances. There is still action on our part. There is still discipline on our part. But I think there is a, a difference between toil, right? Which goes back to creation. What, when, when, did, to, when did work become toil, right? So it's the same way of saying, you know, that I may do a bunch of research for a video game that I'm playing and I'm doing that work and I'm putting in that effort, but that entire process is enjoyment to me. Yeah. So with sanctification, therefore, it's the same. There is still work and there is still discipline and there's action. But what does it mean for that not to be an effort for something, but an enjoyment of something? No, I, I think I completely agree with that. But I also think it's possible to like work towards, like put an effort for something while not enjoying it and still have it be like a fight to return to be enjoying it. I agree with that. Yes, and I think then that's defining enjoyment as pleasure, right? So there are things that are unpleasurable, right? That, but I think that idea of 
again, joy versus happiness, right? So that enjoyment being this thing may not be pleasurable, but I can count it all joy, right? As the Bible says, I can still count it all joy because this entire process has been transformed. Right, right, right. So you don't have to be happy. Also. Yeah, it's not necessarily about a, ha a happiness. Right. Yeah. Which is good to, to remind, right? I, even as we're sharing this, right? Part of trying to understand that is that difference. Yeah, the Christian life is not always going to be happy, but yet the New Testament especially does consider it an always joyful one. So what does that mean? Because wouldn't that be like, like when my brother gives me money to go shopping. If I worked for that money, then that's my effort to get money. But if I get it for free from my brother to go to the mall and shop for something, there is still effort in me buying something. But that money was given freely. I didn't have to toil for it. Right. I think that is the difference that I could probably see even the effort in, in a sense, right? Like attaining it versus effort to enjoy. Yeah. yeah. Now, this is part of the reason why this is hard for us to grasp is this is very hard for us to live, right? This is, this is the difficulty of sanctification. But it's understanding that the difficulty of sanctification is me grasping and therefore living out the grace of gospel, the grace of the gospel and that transformation that has already been given to me and not a difficulty of how do I transform myself. Okay. <clears throat> so all of this, right, is saying in each of... In, Specific, this is different when we're combating sin. This is different when we're, when we're striving for obedience. This is different from when we're fighting injustice and different things like that. But what does it mean to be, right, selflessly selfish? What does it mean to be, um, to be striving, but not in an effort for reward, but in a receiving of the reward? Okay, so <clears throat> next one. Um, enjoy relationship with God and others by worshiping, reconciling, edifying, and evangelizing. I think we were on Jasmine. John 17. John 17, 24. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Okay. So, and this kind of will lead into next week, right, with the idea of church, right? Why do we do church? Why do we do all these things? Because we are actually being restored to our original creation with Adam and Eve, where they were meant to enjoy one another. So when we worship, we are enjoying time with God, yes, but we also do that together to enjoy time with each other. When we reconcile, right? The reason I'm going to re even rebuke you and reconcile with you is actually because I want to enjoy relationship with you. 
and I want others to enjoy relationship with you. When we build people up, right, we want better fellowship, more even our idea of evangelism, because that should do, have to, especially with like, with older people, that gets often used for evangelism, right? Oh, I know I should evangelize this person. I know I should talk to them about Jesus. The transformation of that is saying, I want this person to be my brother or sister in Christ. I want them to be saved. I want them to be a part of the community. I want to have fellowship with them. I want, I, so there is a self ish desire that has been transformed because I don't just want them for myself, right? I want them as myself, as I am, I want them to be and for us to enjoy that together. Otherwise we're evangelizing out of pity, right? It's like, oh, we're so rich, they're so poor, let's go, like, we're colonizing, we're colonizing evangelizing, right? As opposed to like genuine evangelism. Sounds like flirt to convert. Yeah, <laughs> right? Which is sometimes why it is effective, sometimes why it is, and a lot of times why it is very not effective, right, as well. Or convert to flirt. Convert to flirt, right? Like, but hey, like, yeah, we want the body of Christ to be united, just as he is united. Okay, so this is how we fulfill this very seemingly difficult command Right, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Okay? Because we read that. We read that, right? And if we think, okay, it's just about actions, that means that every, like, everything, am I eating the right food? Am I drinking the right drink? Right? But no, what Paul is saying is that you know, if, if your identity and your sanctification is all of these things, then where this is leading us to is that everything is to the glory of God because you inherently are to the glory of God. And so it doesn't become this question of what does God want or what do I want? Both are the same. It doesn't become this, well, I got to stop doing these things. And start doing. It just becomes, who is this that God has made me to do? Or who is this that God has made me to be? And what then does that person do? Okay. Um, now, the enemy wants you to think about sanctification as a goal, as this sort of, like, as Pastor Michael said, right? Discipleship is not a destination, it's a direction. The enemy wants you to think it's a destination because then he can make you think that you've fallen away from it, right? Yeah. That if you're headed towards that goal, well, you screwed up and now you're back at zero, right? So you're starting all over. But it's really more kind of like an upward stock market graph. Right? So if you look at this, this is from uh, Wayne Grudem's book, and I really like it. Okay? So if you look at time, right, that before you are a Christian, there are, there's up and down, but nothing of that is in holiness. Right? So kind of what Sam was talking about earlier, can they turn to God? Yes, they can, but never to a degree where it's going to come from a place of holiness. And at conversion, there is instantly an imputed holiness and all that that we have strived for is now given to us for free but then the christian life is this up and down of enjoying that holiness and allowing that holiness to transform us and the point of death or jesus return is then this jump into perfect holiness You know how it, it is 
if there is any increasing in that process of growing in holiness. As in, does ho is, can holiness be measured by what's the measure of less holiness versus more holiness? Right. Isn't it just like you have holiness or you don't? Is it the measure of enjoyment of holiness? Or is it, because if it becomes about like how much? I think it is the, me I think it is the, so the whole idea here is that it is the measure of, it is the enjoyment of holiness, right? Because of that moment that you are saved, what again, what Jesus did, what we talked about, takes your sin, gives you his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, right, in standing, and then remakes you in the image of that grace and that righteousness and then reunites you to himself and to all others, right? So you are instantaneously given that perfect grace mm -hmm. and that perfect righteousness. But if holiness is the presence of God, right? The accurate reflection of God, the accurate embracing of our identity which is created in the image of God mm -hmm. then our growth in holiness is the enjoyment of that it's like um was it Isaac last week that gave the example of the the, the kid that gets adopted you guys remember that so the story is like there's a king of a kingdom and he's walking around and he sees this one orphan child on the street so he takes the child home and says, oh, I've adopted you as my child, but the servants notice that he keeps shoving food in his pockets and like stealing like jewelry. And he asks him, why are you doing all of these things? And the child says, oh, in case you throw me out, right? So in that instant that he is adopted, he now has access to everything, but he's not enjoying that access. Because of his mentality. Right. So in the moment we are saved, we are given the imputed righteousness of God, but our growth in holiness is saying, but I'm, how does this actually trend or how has this transformed me already? And how do I live that out and enjoy that life? Because even with that example of an orphan kid being adopted in the kingdom, there had to be a, the problem at it is the transformation of his mind, right? right? Like, had it been that child been transformed in his mind that he's no longer an orphan, that he would have been able to enjoy everything, right? right. Then does, does, does the, the path of holy or sanctification more enjoyment or is it more transformation of our mind? No, so I think the way that Paul writes in Romans, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That has all happened. Happened. Yeah, that has all already happened, right? But why, if that has already happened, then why is there less enjoyment? Either because we do not know, we do not understand, or because we turn back to works, right? Like, like I remember, like, so uh, I was at Disneyland, right? Mm -hmm. And they have, they have this thing for annual pass holders, right? Like it was a special thing. You could go and watch like Wreck-It Ralph 2. And I'm standing there in line and this one person is asking, well, what is this, right? 
and the lady says, oh, it's a special event, right? You know, to watch a sneak peek of Wreck-It Ralph 2. This lady goes, well, how much does it cost? And then the cast member's like, oh, it's free for annual pass members. And she goes, oh, I'm an annual pass member, right? So that whole exchange, right, she had access to this the entire time, right? But she did not know and she thought that she had to pay for it, right? So in that, I think that's the problem with sanctification, right? Is like, mm -hmm. we think that this holiness of God is something that we don't have access to yet. So either we have to earn that access, right? But what we realize when we read the word and, and in that process of, of sanctification is, well, you had access to this the whole time, right? Like, you just had to walk in. You just had to receive it. And trying to figure that out, right, is, like, hard. I have like already thoughts on this, but I'm just curious what you think. Uh -huh. Is it possible in the process of being sanctified more like Christ to become less like Him? A believer. No. Because according to that graph, yeah. it isn't a chance. Yeah, because like I think there is like in my, I think it's like it can be in my endeavor to be sanctified in this area of my life, I neglect sanctification in my other, in another area of my life. And that can happen, right? Because I mean, I see that all the time, right? In ministry, you know, there are these, there are these people who are doing amazing ministry work and genuinely out of grace, right? For their mission field or their congregation or whatever. And at the same time at home, they're neglecting Right? their sanctification as a husband or as a father. But does this mean that this wasn't, right? Like, no, it becomes that understand that God is more than one thing. So we too are more than one characteristic, right? And there are sometimes elements of our character that is being sanctified while others are not. That can happen. But it's, when you say others are not, it's just like a stagnancy. I think it can be a backsliding too, because it can be a backsliding into works or a backsliding into into like earning something. You're saying the net worth is always positive. Eh. Because I mean, Jesus does say so. There's some people who will enter into heaven by the skin of their teeth, right? Like you're saved and that's it, right? Like nothing else, zero sanctification. So I do think that is possible because Jesus says it is possible, but. Yeah, I think unless that you are just completely, like, it is usually a net positive. But then when you do a segment, like, how do you, it's not a net positive to the kids that have been ignored, right? So then all of that gets put into play. Yeah. No, I agree. I don't think it's possible to go backwards. But, yeah. Yeah, but then it... If that verse is true, then wouldn't it be possible to not be like Christ? Because for them, so then, but they if if I am being sanctified, like, can I? I think for me, it's who's in control of this process of my sanctification. 
because I think if it is, if it is us, I think the conversation is flipped. It's impossible to proceed. Right. But because it's God and His Spirit working in us, I don't think it. Yeah. Which then is yeah. right, like, even when we're helping people, discipling them through sanctification, a lot of times our first thing is, what must you do, yeah. right? And, right, like, even that question in regards to salvation, when they ask Paul, right, what must I do to be saved? He's like, believe in the Lord Jesus. In essence, what he's saying is, don't do anything. He already did it all, right? All you gotta do is receive it, that's it. Right? So the same way with sanctification, if our first thought is, what do I need to do to be sanctified, then we're never going to be helping people with sanctification. We're just helping them into right, more works. Instead, as we are hopefully counseling them and discipling them, we're saying, is there something about the gospel that you are not understanding? Right. Right? Is there something that you have not yet received? Receive it, and then the question is, how does receiving this transform you? Is that, is that all? Is that the last yeah. thing? I think uh, one question that I get often is, how do they know that they are being sanctified? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I think when people struggle with a certain type of sin, they can see themselves behaviorally getting better um, or vice versa or behaviorally getting better but not like mentally and like their philosophy behind it right and also vice versa mm-hmm. like oh their philosophy has changed but their behaviors aren't changing mm-hmm. how would you answer someone who says one or the other and they're not sure if they're being truly sanctified I think both of those imply to me that in that area of your life you are not being sanctified Right? Because sanctification is this outflowing of identity, right? And so that's how you know, right? Like, God. Bye. I'm doing right. Okay, you can listen to it later. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, so for instance, like, I'll give my example of like pornography because it's the hardest, it's been the hardest element of sanctification for me in my life, right? So there's times where I was physically not doing it. But I, my heart and my mind were still in this place of condemnation and fear and resent all these things, right? And so part of me had to acknowledge, like, that's not genuine sanctification. But then there was a time in my life where my heart and my mind were so remorseful and so guilty, but I was still doing it, <laughs> right? And I'm like, okay, this isn't real sanctification either, right? And so I, need, I needed, you know, yeah, I needed my wife to be like, okay, this is not it, right? You know, and the times in my life right, you know, and now being one of it, is like both are there, right, because it is, I have been transformed by the renewing of my mind and at the certain of God's will is, right, so I think it's like both can be helpful, but something is missing in both of those cases. So what if they say, like, so what can I do? Right. I think the question is, what has Jesus done for you, right? What has God truly done for you? What is the gospel truly in your life? And we can talk about it, right, to help you discover that. But at the end of the day, then it, it comes, sanctification comes in this place of grace, of saying, well, this is something that 
the gospel of, what, of the fact that God himself lived, died, and rose again, and is coming back for me to be saved by grace through faith, there's something in that that has changed me. It's like that song from Wicked. Something has changed within me. <laughs> Something is not the same. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So again, as we disciple people, you know, this becomes really important because one of the reasons this is week seven, right, as opposed to week one, is to say all this stuff that is what God has done for you, we need to understand that. Because that's then what's going to bring about the sanctification in your life. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that it will be easy. And that's often the problem is that we think, oh, it'll be easy. It's not, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it is a change. <coughs> Bless you. Thank you. All right. Cool. Let's pray. All right. Uh, so I can pray for us. Father, we thank you for what you have done on the cross and who you are and the power of the gospel. Um, that you remind us to live in. Um, yeah, and it's so readily available for us. Um, the freedom. But I ask that we will live in that freedom um, every day of our lives every day that we would um, that you would ignite our hearts and cause our hearts to be in all of you and your goodness um, that there will not be a moment where we would put the burden of <coughs> sanctification on us by our works God I ask that you would strengthen um, yeah, our, our inner man and your Holy Spirit, that you will <coughs> strengthen us, that there will be power to choose um, you over what we think is good, because you are really good, and you in you there is freedom, in you there is life. So God, I ask that we would have the power to choose um, your freedom above everything else. And we pray for Pastor Jason and his family, that you would bless him and his two children and Hannah and everything that they do. And Pastor Isaac and Connie and their kids. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.